Ephesians chapter 4. We'll start reading in verse 20. It says, You, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you heard of Him and were taught in Him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God and true, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with his own hands, that he may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as in Christ God forgave you. Let's pray. Lord, as they say, the sun is always shining above the clouds. And we thank you that in this dark, clouded world, clouded over with uncertainties, with economic hardships, Lord, clouded over with the busyness of life, clouded over with uh, war, terrorism, with diseases and dangers. God, we thank you that in this world you are reigning above the clouds, that nothing diminishes the glory of your presence, that this morning, Lord, you are standing exalted above the heavens, that you, Lord Jesus Christ, sits at the Father's right hand in glory, that you have poured out your Holy Spirit. And God, our, our problem is not that we need a God who reigns. Our problem is that we need to see the God who reigns. Our, our vision is so easily um, encumbered by the, the little things of this life. Lord, we're, we're all tied up in knots about mortgage payments and um, school uh, vacation being over and things to do with the kids this summer. We're, we're tied up, Lord, with uh, politics at work and politics in the family. But God, this morning we ask that you might rend the heavens and come down that you might part the clouds so that we can see the risen Christ, that we might have perspective on reality. And we know, Lord, that the way you come down and speak to us is through your word. And so as we come to your word now, we are expecting that you might speak to our hearts. God, I pray for anyone here who is discouraged, who sitting in church trying to hold it together, but they just feel like they're falling apart. God, I pray that you'd come down to comfort them this morning. God, I pray for any of us who have lost our way this week, who have followed the ways of this world, that you might convict us and then speak words of forgiveness to us so that we can come back to you. God, we again pray for our missionary, John Templehoff, this morning, that you might uh, continue to pour out the Holy Spirit upon him, that he might be an effective minister for you in South Africa. Thank you, Lord, for the great privilege we have of, of partnering with him in the work of evangelism in that country. And God, we look forward to what you're going to say to us now through your word. And so we pray that you'd be here with us. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> A uh, woman is an insurance salesman, and she goes to sell a life insurance policy to her brother. And during the application interview, her brother, uh, she has to ask her brother a series of standard questions, and she asks him, do you smoke? 
knowing that he does smoke, but she has to ask the question. And uh, the brother says, well, will it affect my premiums? And she says, yeah, it'll probably raise them by 50%. And the brother says, no, I don't smoke. So now what does the woman do? On the one hand, she can tell the truth and say, well, he does smoke and check that box off on the, the insurance application. But she's going to incur the wrath of her brother, which is tied into a whole bunch of family history that she doesn't want to go there again. And she might lose the sale. Or on the other hand, she can lie on the insurance form because what's the big deal anyway? She can say, no, he doesn't smoke, keep the peace, and uh, keep her uh, brother happy, and make the sale uh, in addition. So, you know, what do you do? How big of a deal is it? Well, for those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ, the answer to that ethical dilemma hopefully is a no-brainer. Because Paul tells us clearly that as Christians, we should be marked by truth instead of falsehood. And so our text this morning is Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25. It says, therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. When we became followers of Christ, when Jesus Christ came into our lives, we, a, a, a radical transformation took place. We went from darkness to light. We went from death to life. Something so radical happened in us that, that it might be termed a metamorphosis. We became a completely different kind of person in Christ. And part of that means that we no longer live in the old ways of sin, which includes lying and deceit. In fact, uh, look back at verses 22 to 24. Do you remember last week we studied these verses about putting off the old self and putting on the new? It says in verse 22, You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and then third, to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Then in verses 25 and following, what Paul is doing is giving specific examples of putting off and putting on. He's given us the general principle, but then in verses 25 and following, he wants to give us some concrete for instances. For instance, this is what it looks like to put off the old and put on the new. And the first for instance we get is uh, verse 25. In the next couple of weeks, we're going to be looking at these for instances. The first, for instance, is in verse 25, and it's about putting off lying and falsehood and putting on truth. Look at verse 25 again. Therefore, each of you must put off, there's that language, falsehood, and instead speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. So what I want to do is just think with you about these two aspects, the putting off of falsehood, the negative command, and the speaking truthfully, which is the positive command. So first of all, Paul tells us that as Christians, we need to put off falsehood. Now, falsehood, of course, uh, is a way of existence. Falsehood here, it, Paul's talking about, is not merely telling a lie, but, but it's the whole deceitful, self-deluded life I live without Jesus. Before I came to Jesus, I lived in a state of lying. By, by saying I don't believe in Christ, I'm lying to myself. By saying that oh, I don't need God, I'm lying to myself. I mean, it, it's not just telling a lie that Paul's talking about. It's the whole old self that was marked by a cloud of deceit in everything in the way I looked at life, in addition to telling individual lies. And so as a result, human beings are liars. We are, by nature, liars. Starts at a very young age. Every little, every parent had the heartbreaking experience of three-year-old Johnny or four-year-old Susie telling their first lie. 
and the kids realize, oh, I can lie. You know, and usually you can see through it. You go downstairs and you hear this, ah, you know. You run downstairs to see who's crying, and there's your daughter. This is hypothetical, by the way. Uh, there's your daughter, you know, holding her head. Ah, and there's your son right next to her with, with a wiffle ball bat. And he looks at you and says, I didn't hit her with the bat. Like, okay. You know, it's, now, as we get older and become teenagers, you become more adept at lying, and you can get away with it more easily. You tell your parents you're going to a movie, but instead you go to a party. And the key is, teenagers, if I can tell you how to do this, is to find someone at the party who saw the movie so that you talk to them and say, all right, give me the cliff notes. Okay? And, and you get the basic gist of the movie so that when you go home and you know, your parents are like, why are you telling them this? You know? They already know, actually. Uh, and, and when they come home, they say, oh, well, I'll tell you what the movie was about. It was about this, 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 and this. Oh, OK, great. And your parents don't know. Or uh, technologically advanced teenagers now can lie by downloading papers from the internet, don't have to do research. Uh, the the, the uh, statistics I've heard, uh, Rich, our youth pastor, was telling me that uh, cheating is epidemic among high school students. I mean, it just everyone does it. And you, you have to really fight not to do it. So many people cheat on so many things. It's a kind of lying. Then as we move into adulthood, we continue to lie. Lying just marks our existence. We, we've all done it in so many ways. Uh, the Bible lists many types of lying. If you could take out your sermon notes for a moment, this little insert in your bulletin, just to save time uh, and save flipping around, I, I've listed some texts in the Bible that pinpoint different kinds of lying. If you look on the front, <clears throat> examples of falsehood denounced in the Bible. Do you see that on the front? Lying in general is denounced. Leviticus 19.11 says, do not steal, do not lie, do not deceive one another. False testimony, the famous one from the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20.16. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. Don't perjure yourself. Don't say something is true when it's false. Don't go to a court of law and, and bear false witness against somebody. Or Leviticus 6.2, covering up. It says, if anyone sins, is an unfaithful to the Lord, by deceiving his neighbor about something entrusted to him or left in his care or stolen. So, so if you give me something and it gets wrecked, and I lie about it to you to somehow cover up what happened, that's another type of covering up and lying. Or swearing falsely, Leviticus 6.3 says, or if he swears falsely, or if he commits any such sin as people may do. Even hypocrisy is a kind of lying. 1 John 2.4, the man who says, I know him, I know God, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. So lying takes so many forms. Sometimes it can be the big things like purging ourselves in a court of law. Oftentimes it's just the little things in life where we live in a state of deceit. You know, uh, so-and-so's on the phone for you. Who? So-and-so. Oh, uh, tell him I'm not here. I don't want to talk to him. It's a kind of lie. The zoo says, children, five and under for free. You look at your six-year-old and you go, huh, I bet you could pass for a five-year-old. <laughs> one adult and one five-year-old, please. It just, it just happens. We tell a story. People are into the story, so we stretch it a little bit. We embellish it a little bit just to make it a little more exciting. We add a few details, and pretty soon it's not exactly what happened, but it is more exciting than what happened. And now people are, ooh, they're with you. They're following you. Yes, it's great. And you've got a good audience because people are listening. You know, Constant temptation for preachers. 
tell, just stretch the story a little bit. I, I remember a, a pastor telling how, uh, in fact, he got up in, in front of the congregation and said, you know, I told a story a couple weeks ago, and it wasn't exactly true. Because, you know, it's just tempting to think, well, if I just add this or expand this, then I'll, people will really follow the story. And, and we do that in personal conversations as well. It's very tempting to do. Um, person says to you, I need it by Thursday. Can you get it to me by Thursday? You say, yeah, I'll get it to you by Thursday, knowing full well that you can't. And that the best you could do is maybe Friday or Monday. But you think, ah, oh, I don't want to lose the sale. And if I say, yeah, I'll get it to you by Thursday, I'll close the sale, and then they'll be stuck with me. What can they do? So I have to get it by Friday, and you know, they're not going to go to someone else. So you say, yeah, I'll get it to you by Thursday. It's another type of lying. Or you're in the parking lot, and you forget there's a car next to you. You open up the door, bang, scrape. You look over, and you just dinged and dented this Jaguar. You're like, oh, you know, what am I going to do? No one saw me, slow the door, back down to the parking space, go to another parking space. You know, it, it, it's so easy. Maybe you heard the one about the guy who uh, banged the door and scraped the car next to him, and he looks at it, looks up, and there's about three or four people standing around looking at him. So he reaches back in his car, gets a piece of paper and a pencil, and smiles at everyone, and writes a note. He says, I, I'm sorry, I banged and scraped your door. There's a lot of people looking, so I had to write this note, but I'm not going to give you my name and phone number. You know, and <laughs> he puts it underneath the... It's endemic to the human condition. We lie for a number of reasons. Often we lie in order to cover up sins. We lie to cover up mistakes. We lie to cover up the affair, to cover up the drinking binge, to uh, uh, cover up the, the gambling debt that we have accrued. We, we don't want people to know about mistakes we make, so we lie in such a way as to, to put things to the side. Sometimes it's not a bald-faced lie. Sometimes it's just a little distortion of the truth. I just left something off. Although I told you 80% of the story. We're liars. It comes so naturally, you don't have to try. We are liars by nature. Whether it's the big things like perjuring yourself in a court of law, or just the subtle things of life. We, we, lying is so uh, natural for us. That's why I say that lying is not just telling a lie. It's a state of existence apart from God, in which we live in a condition of deceit. Yeah, I had a quote uh, that I thought was great when I was doing research on this uh, passage, and I put it in your sermon notes at the bottom on the front. I thought this guy put the idea so well that lying is not just a, an act, but it's a condition. He said a lie is not simply a single act. It is an attitude of existence which determines the whole of life. Because it resists the one who gives life, which is God, it is the deceitful accomplice of death. Such an existence in the lie manifests itself in the individual lies which reveal who is in control of men. Man without God is trapped in lies, unable to see through the deception and destined for death. And so in order to protect ourselves from this inevitability, we lie to ourselves. And we tell ourselves, well, lying's not that big of a deal. That's probably the worst lie that we accept. Lying isn't a big deal. I mean, come on, it's a white lie. It's a little lie. Everyone does it in this business. I mean, in this business, it's not understood as lying because everyone does it. It's just accepted. That's how it works. Uh, come on, you know, don't be so legalistic about lying. It's not so bad. Just don't get caught. That's the point. And, and so we have all these ways of, of sort of downplaying and downsizing lying and say it's not that big of a deal. But it is a big deal. A lie can cost you your job. If it's bad enough and in the wrong place at the wrong time, it could cost you your career and ruin your integrity. 
A lie can uh, ruin a marriage. A lie can cost a family. If you tell the lie to the wrong person, it could land you in jail. Lies are a big deal. And even if you're getting away with it for a while, you still know that you're lying. That's the thing. So while other people are sleeping sound in their beds at night, we're tossing and turning and trying to remember, all right, who did I tell what to who? And so, oh, if they find out this, then I've got to say that. And we're concocting lies to cover up lies. Because once you get in the lie spiral, it's just down, 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 down it goes. And so you're trying to cover up lies to cover up lies to cover up lies. And so it just keeps you going in the lie momentum. And so while other people are sleeping sound in the beds, you're trying to keep it all straight in your head. Like Mark Twain said, the great thing about telling the truth is you don't have to remember anything. You just tell the truth. But lying is even worse than that. Lying is a big deal. And not just because it can hurt us in this life. Not just because it keeps us up at night. But lying is ultimately a big deal because God hates liars. God hates lying. He hates it. God judges it. It it makes him burn with anger. Because God is the truth. God is pure truth. There's no deceit in God. I look on the back of the sermon notes again. Look at the bottom uh, on, the, on the back page. God is truth. Numbers 23, 19. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. 1 Samuel 15, 29. He who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. Or Titus chapter 1, verses 1 to 2. Uh, where Paul begins his letter. He says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, a faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life with God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. God doesn't lie. He always tells the truth. If he promises something, he does it. His word never falls to the ground. And so when God sees us lying, it just kindles his wrath. God hates Liars. He hates lying. It just, it, it's so the antithesis of everything which is good. Lying is, is the source of all evils, in a sense. It, it's the, the, the sin behind sin. Because once we believe the lie, the door is open for all sin. That's why Satan is called the father of lies. Because lying is his basic nature, and out of lying comes all the other sins to which we fall prey. Once we believe the lie, we'll do anything else that Satan wants us to do. <clears throat> And so God hates lying. In fact, let me just show you a passage in the Bible that shows how God feels about lying. Bookmark Ephesians 4. You need to read this. And turn over to Acts chapter 5. This story is amazing. Acts chapter 5. If you don't know where that is, it's on page 1081. 1081. Acts chapter 5. Starting in verse 1. A chilling story in the annals of the early church. Acts chapter 5, verse 1. It says, Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Now just to give you a little background, uh, this is the early church. One of the practices in the early church was to care for the poor, people would often sell property or uh, assets, and then they would take the money and they would give it to the apostles and say, here, give this to the poor, distribute this to the poor. 
And the problem here is that Ananias and Sapphira had, uh, and it's, it's not, doesn't say it explicitly, but we'll, we find this out later, they had said, we'll give all the money of the sale to the poor, but they sell the property and they only give a portion. So they give a portion of what they said they were going to give. That's the problem. It's not that they held any back, but it's that they said they would give the whole thing. They lied. Look at verse 3. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourselves some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? Again, the problem isn't that he kept some money. It's that he said he was going to give the money. What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men, but to God. And when Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then the young man, the young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. The uh, sinner burial ministry. Whew. Verse 7, it says about three hours later, his wife came in not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. And at that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. So ironic. She was going to bring the money to his feet. Instead, she falls dead at his feet. And then the young men came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. God hates lying. God hates liars. It's the antithesis of everything that God is. And as if that's not bad enough, I found one other text that just took my breath away. It's on the back of your sermon notes. As if that's not crystal clear enough. This one gives me the chills. I don't even know what to say about this one. It's in Revelation 21, book of Revelation, very end of the story. It's, kind of, it's about the final fate of those who follow Christ and those who don't. It says in Revelation 21, verses 6 to 8, he, uh, Christ said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, oh yeah, murderers, they're bad, that's right. The sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. There it is. God hates lying and liars. It is a big deal. Lying does matter. Even if we get away with it, even if we manage, as uh, contrary to Abraham Lincoln, even if we manage to fool all the people all the time, we never fool God in the end. He sees right through us like, like he's looking through saran wrap. He can just look right into our hearts. and He knows everything that we do. But the good news is that Jesus Christ came to die on a cross to forgive liars like us. That even though through my own lips I have condemned myself, even though I've lied to my parents growing up, 
I've lied to people close to me. Even though lying is, is just a natural way of life, Christ came to die so that I could be forgiven for the lies in my life and the lie that I have lived. Christ came and he was crucified on that cross so that he might take the punishment I deserve that we just read about. So instead of me dying for my sins, Christ dies for my sins. And so now by laying hold of Christ, by putting my faith in Jesus alone for salvation, not in my good works, not in thinking that I'm some kind of good guy, but in recognizing that Christ alone can save me, I cling to Christ and he forgives a liar like me. It's astounding. Christ has forgiven sinners. And he doesn't just forgive us. You know, becoming a Christian isn't just fire insurance. It's not just protection from the, the final death. It's also a transformation of my life now. Salvation is something that's not yet, but already. And so already Christ has begun changing my life. And so now I must put off that falsehood because Christ is saving me. I must end that lying way of life. And I have to learn, and it takes time, but I have to learn to begin becoming a truth teller. And so that's what it says there in chapter 4, verse 25. Therefore, as a consequence of this transformation that Jesus has done inside of me, we must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to our neighbors. And here's, look at this line, for we are all members of one body. We're all connected to each other. And so if I tell a lie to you, I'm actually hurting myself. And if, if you sin against so-and-so, it actually hurts me. And it, it, sin has a boomerang effect in the body of Christ because we're all connected. We're organically and systemically connected in a sense. I've said this before, but the, the body of Christ is not like a bunch of marbles in a bag that roll into church and then roll out of church. We're like grapes on a vine that are all connected to one another so that the life of Christ is flowing through us and connecting us one to another. So don't lie because we're all members of one body. So as Christians, because we are forgiven by Christ, not because we're trying to earn our way to heaven by being good, but because Christ has forgiven us, and changed us, we now want to live a new kind of life that, that's in keeping with what God has done inside of us. We want to be like God, who is true. We want to be truth-tellers. So what does that mean in the body of Christ? You say, well, it means tell the truth. Like, yeah, right, it means tell the truth. But maybe we could think a little bit more about some of the different nuances of truth-telling. I think one of the things it means is that we're promise-keepers. That if we say we're going to do something, we actually do it. We follow through on what we say. Obviously, we forget sometimes, and we're only human to an, in a sense. But as far as we can, we try to keep our promises. We, we don't just say, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll do that to make the person happy that we're talking to at the moment. But, but if we say we're going to do something, we follow through. We are known as people of our word. Or as Jesus said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Let people know that if you say you're going to do it, you do it. Promise keeping, I think, is part of, of truth telling in the body of Christ. Another way that we can tell the truth in the body of Christ is to not pass along gossip. This is a tough one, I know. We, we love gossip, don't we? Gossip is so juicy, it's so enjoyable. Person A has a, a tiff with person B, and so person B comes to you, person C, and they go, you know what person A said to me? Person A said this and this and this and this. So, and person C goes, you know, person A said that to me once. Hm. Well, I'm gonna tell person B. You know, and, and so we're suddenly passing stories along in the body of Christ. We're passing conflicts along. And I'm person C, and I wasn't even there for person A and B. I, was, I didn't even witness it. I don't know the truth. Perhaps it's a half-truth. And as often is the case, 
uh, there are two sides to every story. I mean, you find that out in life. But rather than saying what I should have said is, you know, person B, I, I sympathize with what you're saying. And boy, if what they said, if that's true, that's really the wrong thing. And, and I want to pray for you. But you know what? You probably at some point need to go back to person A and talk about it with person A. And if you want, I'll go with you. And I'll, I'll, I'll just be there to listen. I'll be an objective third party if you don't feel like you can do it. I'm willing to go with you, assuming that I can be objective. But, but if I think I can be objective, I'll say that to the person. Why don't you go talk to them, and I'll go with you. And, and you work it out this way. Instead of B going to C and D and D calling up EFG and G calling up the rest of the alphabet, and then pretty soon the whole alphabet is mad at A, and, and you know, and when the alphabet doesn't work, I mean, everything falls apart. So uh, you know, it's, instead of passing along things that we don't know if they're true or not, we deal directly with each other in a loving, kind way. That's another important aspect of being the body of Christ. I think another way that we can tell the truth in the body of Christ, and this is kind of a tricky one, but being willing to rebuke each other. We don't use that word rebuke a lot, but uh, rebuke is kind of a tricky thing. A, a rebuke is just telling someone when they're coming up short. It, it's loving someone enough to come to them and tell them the truth about something that they're doing wrong or an attitude that they have wrong or something like that. Uh, rebuking is not something we like to do. Nobody likes to give a rebuke. If you do like to give a rebuke, there's something wrong with you. And I rebuke you for that. Uh, you, you <laughs> we shouldn't like straightening people out. But, but there are times in life when I love somebody and I have built a, a rapport with them. I think that's in, in most of the cases, you have to first earn the right to be heard. Rebuking is not just charging around with, you know, your spiritual shotgun, you know, shooting the clay pigeons of sin everywhere you see them. You know, it's, it's going into a relationship where you have trust and respect, where you know that the person loves you and you love them. And then it's with a spirit of humility, gentleness, love, self-examination. Like Jesus said, first you've got to take the log out of your eye before you go and try to get the little speck out of someone else's eye. First, you've got to examine yourself. And, and when you're in that frame of mind, you gently and humbly say, you know, I'd like to talk to you about something. And you share it with them. Now, I've been rebuked by my wife at times. Um, it doesn't happen often, maybe like once or twice a day. Um, <laughs> it, it's actually gotten better is the thing. Uh, and she rebukes me sometimes. And, you know, the, the thing I've learned over time is she's typically right. And I've just had to deal with that fact. Uh, a couple weeks ago, she rebuked me. I was, uh, I was having dinner. We were having dinner outside. And we have a picnic table on our porch. And in the summer, we're out there. And my, my daughter was uh, trying to tell a story. And I was kind of in a jovial mood. And so she tried to start telling her story. And I teased her. And I said, blah, 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 and sort of cut her off. And she said, Daddy. And I'm like, eh. You know, daddy, daughter kind of thing. And so she did it again. And so I teased her again. And she did it again. And I teased her again. And I did it probably like five times until finally I let her tell her story. And, uh, you know, I was like, ha-ha, you know, this is fine. And we went, went on with our dinner. And a couple days later, my wife pulls me aside. She says, you know, you shouldn't be interrupting our daughter like that. I said, oh, come on. You know, that's my first reaction. Oh, come on, what's the big deal? I'm just teasing. It's just having fun. She's like, yeah, teasing's okay. But, you know, if you keep doing it, it's not funny anymore. And she gets exasperated, which oh, I guess I'll be preaching on in a couple months, right? Exasperating your children. Uh, you know, it's like I'm exasperating her. And I didn't realize it. You know, from my I didn't even think about it. My wife said, you know, if you keep doing that, 
she's going to start thinking that you don't care what she has to say. I'm like, oh, yeah. So I thought about it, and I said, i got to stop that. And it's funny, a couple weeks later, maybe it was a week or so later, but I, I was trying to remember, uh, anyway, I, I was talking to my daughter, and she starts telling me something again, and I teased her. And then suddenly it, it caught. I go, oh, I am doing it. I do this sometimes. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with teasing. I'm a jovial person by nature, but you know, there's a point where it has to end. And I'm so thankful that my wife had the courage to say, you know, <clears throat> and now I'm a better father for it. And who knows what, what kind of patterns you slip into. You know, we have so many blind spots. We have so many blind spots, people. So many blind spots, you don't even know what blind spots you have. In fact, if you were to sit down and say, tell me my blind spots, you'd be shocked at what people told you who really knew you because we have so many blind spots. And we need each other in the body of Christ in love, humility, gentleness, and kindness at the appropriate time to rebuke each other when there's an attitude of trust and respect. I think that's an important part of telling the truth. And then a final part of telling the truth in the body of Christ is that we are willing to be vulnerable and open with one another. That we don't pretend that we have it all together. There's always that temptation to come into church and to be like, oh, you know, where's the, oh, my mask, you know. <laughs> Hi, I'm fine, I'm fine, how are you? Great, everything's good. <laughs> you know, and, and we go out of church, and then we get back in the car, and you know, <laughs> you know. It's, that's how we really felt, but you know, we're in a church, we're like this. <laughs> so, so we get back in the car, and then we just let our family have it, because we go back to our old self. And we're in the church, and we pretend that there's nothing wrong with us. And I think part of being in the church is that we open up our lives to one another. Uh, Church isn't coming, hearing a sermon, going out to lunch and critiquing the sermon and going home. Church is building relationships with the body of Christ. That's part of church. It's opening our lives. doesn't mean that you have to go around to people and, hi, how you doing, and just, bleh, you know, to everybody you meet. Obviously, I believe there's also the, a place for building trust and building relationships. But it means that, that as a Christian, I, I want to really get to know some other Christians. Maybe you're shy. Maybe you're reserved. Okay. Get to know two other Christians. It doesn't have to be a zillion people, but people with whom you can open up your life. And when they say, how you doing, you don't have to give the fake fine, but you can say, let me talk for a minute. I need you to pray for me. <laughs> you know, do you have some people like that in your life? If you don't pray, God, God, show me who these people are. Help me to do that. Maybe it means getting into a Bible study or forming a Christian friendship or you know, whatever, an accountability prayer partner you meet with once a week, once every other week. Whatever you have to do, make sure there's some people you can be real with about your life. And when you do that, that also opens up the door for the gentle rebuke so that people can help you and honestly work with you to grow in your Christian life. I once heard a story told by Becky Pippert. I don't know if you've ever read any of Pippert's stuff. She, she wrote a, a book on evangelism. Uh, she's an evangelist. She wrote a book on evangelism maybe a couple decades ago. Great little book called Out of the Salt Shaker into the World. Just a great practical introduction for evangelism. And if any of you here are evangelistically challenged, uh, I would encourage you to read that book as a get-go uh, to, to get started in, in evangelism. But anyway, she, she told a story once about a neighbor that she had in an apartment next to her. And this neighbor was not a Christian. Woman didn't have anything to do with the church or with Christ. And in fact, uh, this woman was hostile at, at first to the Christian faith living with some guy, and so Becky just tries to be nice to her, shows friendship, invites her over, builds a relationship, slowly and gently begins telling her about Jesus, all the stuff you should be doing when you evangelize. 
And then uh, this woman still would not come to Christ, still would not give her a hearing. Finally, uh, one day, Becky just had a terrible day, horrible day. And everything that could go wrong went wrong. And so she comes home, you know, just like about ready to burst. And this lady walks up to her and says, so how you doing? And, you know, the dam bursts all over this lady. Oh, I've had such a terrible day. And she just falls apart and then, you know, goes inside. Oh, what an idiot I was. You know, why did I do that? I tried to evangelize this lady and now I'm just sobbing and, you know, all over this lady. A couple weeks later, the lady comes and says, you know what? I've become a Christian. And Becky says, oh, really? I'm totally surprised, caught off guard. Well, you know, well, tell me about it. She says, the decisive moment for me was when you came and cried that day because I realized that to be a Christian doesn't mean you have to have your whole life together or that you're perfect. It, it means that you can come to God with your flaws. And she says, you know, I've got problems, I've got flaws, and if I've got to get my act altogether perfect first, then I'm never going to be able to come to God. And Becky's like, well, that's what I've been trying to tell you, that you don't come to God perfect. She's like, yeah, but I never understood it until you were open and just, and I saw you crying, and I realized that solid, committed Christians can struggle at different points in life. And it's that kind of honesty, cultivating that honesty, not just telling the truth in terms of telling truths, but cultivating a truthful lifestyle that's open. And, and as we have that kind of lifestyle, what happens is, the truth of Christ just shines through us so much more clearly. We don't get in the way as we become truth tellers. Think of your life as a window. And if we tell the truth, the window is clean. There's no dust on it. And so the light of Christ shines through heaven through us. And the gospel becomes real in ways it never could have before. Let's pray. Oh God, I thank you that you are truth. I thank you, Lord, that the truth not only informs, but it transforms, that your truth of the gospel has transformed us. And God, I pray, as transformed people, that we would slowly but surely learn what it means to tell the truth. I pray, Lord, that we'd be marked by truth. I pray that the people of South Shore Baptist Church, starting with me, that it would be said of us that our yes means yes and our no means no, that when we give our word, we keep it, that we're honest, we, we don't change our stories to appease the people we're talking to at the moment. God, give us the strength to tell the truth. Close up, clothe us with your character. Now as we come to communion, God, we worship you because you have given us Christ. Christ has saved us from our sins. We know, Lord, that there's not one of us here who could ever stand before you in our own good deeds and righteousness. There's no one here who's decent enough or good enough to stand before you. Lord, if we were, any of us were to stand before you without Christ, we would be cast into hell forever because that's what we deserve. But we thank you that Jesus Christ has died for sinners like me and like us and that by clinging to the cross, there is a way of salvation. And so God, as we come to this communion table now, we come with a mixed feeling. We come with one hand of a, a sense of humility and um, brokenness before you, recognizing our imperfection. But we also come with a sense of joy and celebration, celebrating what Christ has done that we can never do for ourselves. And so, Lord, meet us at this communion table now. I pray that you would be serving the congregation, that you, Jesus Christ, would be passing out grace and mercy to the congregation, that you would be speaking your love to us. We ask this in Jesus' name.